Welcome to The Five By, your bi-weekly dose of rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, I plant some pretty trees in Arboretum, Mason uncovers golden scarabs in Scarabia, Mike battles for control of the mythical forest in Haven, and Ruth builds a house in Dream Home. But first, Sarah goes on an adventure in Forbidden Desert. I like co-op games, and I love tense, puzzly co-ops. A group of friends working together, combining their strengths to overcome seemingly insurmountable odds? I love that. And Forbidden Desert, designed by Matt Leacock and published by GameRite, is one of my favorites. Forbidden Desert is the second in what is now a trilogy by Leacock. First Forbidden Island came out in 2011, then Forbidden Desert in 2013, and Forbidden Sky was released just a few weeks ago. I haven't played Forbidden Sky yet, but Forbidden Desert and Forbidden Island have a lot in common. Both have no board, instead the play area is a 5x5 grid of tiles which players must explore. In Forbidden Desert, players are searching for the components of their flying ship so they can escape the desert. But there's an empty space in the middle of the grid, and at the end of each turn, you draw cards from a special deck which direct you to slide one, two, or three tiles along the empty space. This has two effects. First, every tile that moves gets a sand token added to it. Tiles with sand on them can't be searched until the sand is removed and tiles with two or more sand on them can't be moved onto. Second, as tiles move around the grid, the location of the missing components you're trying to find move as well. The deck also includes Sun Beats Down cards that cause every player to lose some of their limited supply of water, and Storm Picks Up cards that increase the number of cards you draw each turn. Though both Forbidden Island and Forbidden Desert are simpler than Leacock's wildly successful earlier co-op, Pandemic, they share a few key mechanisms. Characters with unique abilities that complement each other, four actions per turn, the deck of badness that adds an element of luck, balancing a game-winning objective against the constant need to stave off multiple game-losing conditions. They also have extremely well-written rulebooks, which is true of every Matt Leacock game I've played. The rules are clear, well-organized, and unambiguous. I may have to read a rule carefully to parse out exactly what it means, but I almost never have to look it up on BGG. That is a rare and wonderful thing. I have to admit, the first time I played Forbidden Desert, I didn't know it had been created by the same person as Pandemic. But when I learned that, it made so much sense. The rhythm of Forbidden Desert is very similar to Pandemic. Not just the similar mechanisms, but the building of tension. In the first couple of turns, you have so many options. The tile grid looks like limitless possibilities spread out before you. I'll head towards the opposite corner and excavate, you say confidently. There's plenty of time for us all to go in different directions and still get back to the watering hole. But as you flip over that card, the storm keeps moving, and the sand piles up, and before you know it, there's so much sand on the board, you're in danger of running out of sand tokens, which means you lose, and you had a clear path to go pick up the propeller on your turn, but the storm moved, and now there's an empty space blocking your way, and you're buried under the sand anyway, and have to dig yourself out, and even if you could get to the propeller, you can't go get it, because the climber is almost out of water, and there's only one watering hole left, and it's way over there, and you can't remember how many Sun Beats Down cards are left in the deck, so you don't know if there's time to get her over there before she dies, which means you'll lose, and that is how Forbidden Desert feels most of the time. Hanging on by your fingernails, trying to scrape as much efficiency as you possibly can out of every action, dreading each card that gets flipped over. That heart-stopping tension is what I love about Matt Leacock games, and Forbidden Desert delivers. Now, like all puzzly games, with repeated plays, the tension in Forbidden Desert starts to dissipate. The better you understand the game, the more you feel like you've solved the puzzle. 
but the game comes with four difficulty levels to help keep it a challenge. I've also found Forbidden Desert more difficult with more players. When playing solo, I can effectively adjust the difficulty level by how many characters I play. A four-player game on Legendary difficulty is a whole different beast from a two-player game on Novice or Normal. My only real concern about Forbidden Desert is quarterbacking. To win, the players all need to coordinate their turns, talking through what each is going to do. It's too easy for one player who understands the game better, or thinks they do, to spend the entire game dictating everyone else's turns. As much as I hate quarterbacking, I've even caught myself doing it. I recently played a game of Forbidden Desert where one of the players wasn't nearly as familiar with the game as the rest. Every time he hesitated, I had to force myself not to jump in and just tell him what to do. Quarterbacking is a problem with many co-ops, Matt Leacock co-ops in particular, and Forbidden Desert makes no effort that I can see to mitigate it. All you can do is play with people who respect and listen to each other, gently point it out if others become overbearing, and be vigilant about not doing it yourself. Despite this caveat, Forbidden Desert is a wonderful game, a classic for a reason. A bit simpler than Pandemic, but cut from the same cloth. It's a great game to play with family members, and for any time you want a slightly less intense, but still quite challenging co-op. And that's Forbidden Desert. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not digging propellers out of sand dunes, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hi, it's Meeple Lady, and today I'll be talking about Arboretum, a wonderful strategy card game from Renegade Games. It's designed by Dan Kesser, with beautiful artwork from the talented Beth Sobel. The game is for two to four players and plays in about 30 minutes. Renegade Games just released this latest edition of Arboretum that comes in this little white box. The box is about the size of a paperback novel with a purple tree on the lid. Arboretum comes with 80 cards, consisting of 10 different species of trees, and each card in a species is numbered 1 to 8. There's a blue spruce, which looks like a giant blue Christmas tree, the willow with its green droopy branches, the cherry blossom tree with its cute pink Japanese flowers, and a whole host of others. Each species' artwork is delightful and gorgeous, and if the colors are hard for you to differentiate among the various tree species, each card is marked with its own unique symbol, and the species' name is written at the bottom. The game mechanics are pretty simple. Players are trying to build out the best arboretum in front of them. They start with a hand of seven cards, and on their turn, they draw two cards, discard one card, and play one card face-up in front of them into their own arboretum. Players will always have seven cards in their hands. When players draw their cards, they have the option to draw from the face-down deck or from the discard deck of any of the other players, including themselves. Also, players can discard the same card they just picked up if they choose to. When you play a card into your arboretum, you're trying to create a path for which visitors will want to visit, starting and ending with the same tree species. Each card must be played orthogonally from another card, and when you trace a path for your visitors for scoring at the end of the game, each card must be numerically higher than the previous one. Keeping species together unbroken in your path will net more victory points in the end, and starting your path with a 1 card and or ending with an 8 card will also give you bonus VPs. But what starts out as a peaceful game about planting trees and admiring all the colorful foliage slowly starts turning into a really cutthroat and tense strategic game. The one thing I haven't mentioned yet is that in order for you to score a species in your arboretum, you must have the highest sum of that tree species in your hand at the end of the game. 
Thus, only one person can gain the option to score a tree species path, and when you reveal all the cards in your hands at the end of the game, if a person has an 8 card of that species that's being scored, the value turns into 0 when an opponent has a 1 card of the same species, and then everyone adds up the sum of their cards to determine who gains the option to score that species. So while you're laying down a pretty path of cherry blossom trees, you're planning your moves to ensure that you can also score them. Otherwise, it'll all be a waste. As the game continues, more and more cards will be seen face up, either in discard piles or in arboretum. You gain more information about what cards are in play or what players might be holding in their hands. Meanwhile, all the pretty trees start filling up the table as players' arboretums grow. Naturally, as all this information unfolds, the tension ramps up. You have to make tough decisions about which cards to leave in your hand, which to play, and which to discard. Because you obviously don't want to discard a tree card that you see your opponent working toward, but maybe you've completely given up on that species. Or you might be able to account for an entire species since all the cards are in your hand or face up somewhere on the table. Or you might just have to make an educated guess about which cards your opponents are hanging on to. Or maybe, just maybe, you want to block your opponent from scoring their glorious maple tree path, even though you have exactly zero maple trees in your arboretum. Because yeah, that is a perfectly legit strategy in this game. The game ends when the draw pile is empty. Players can rush the ending by constantly taking from the draw pile. Once the draw pile is empty, you go down the list and score each species. Players reveal the cards in their hands, and the person with the highest sum of that species has the option to score a path. The path must start and end with that tree, and during scoring, cards can be used multiple times for various scoring paths. The person with the most VPs wins the game. If it's still a tie, the person with the most species in their arboretum wins the game. If that's still a tie, tied players must each plant a tree. In five years' time, the player whose tree has grown the tallest wins. Arboretum is gorgeous and unassumingly brutal. It's right up my alley. I love balancing that push and pull between keeping cards in your hands versus playing them down in your arboretum. Also, the card game is inviting enough to introduce to new gamers, but strategic to engage heavy gamers like myself. And that's Arboretum! This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Scarabia. I find it deeply unfortunate that we use the word game to mean both rules, concepts, and shared social play space, and this box of paper and cardboard and plastic. Sometimes these two use cases are inextricable, sometimes totally independent, usually somewhere in the middle. A lot of the card games I really like could be played with just index cards if you remembered which values to write on them, but something like Potion Explosion is a play experience entirely centered around this retail product. For the next few minutes then, let's separate the two ideas and talk about them as the game, which is the rules and play, and the product, which is the box and the bits. This is important in talking about Scarabia because I really liked one and I really hated the other. Scrabia is a fairly new Cathala and Malblanc game from Blue Orange. It's a polyominoes game, which have been around since the 50s, but have had a recent hobby gaming renaissance due in part to the popularity of Uwe Rosenberg's patchwork. See Ruth's segment on Baron Park back in episode 14, Rell's coverage of Umbongo in episode 36, and Sarah's piece on Cottage Garden from episode 40. 
Unlike these other games though, Scrabia is mostly a flip-in-place solo puzzle. Everyone has the same four board pieces in the same polyomino set. There's a deck of cards showing all the possible tiles, so you flip a card, find the matching piece, and then place it on your board. The game here is building open areas of exactly four spaces not covered by the tiles, which is much more difficult than it sounds. There are scarab symbols on the boards, and they score triangularly, which is one, two, three, or four points, each dependent on how many other scarabs are already in the open area that you've made. But that's it. That's the game. And it's fun and challenging and honestly pretty difficult to do well. There's some built-in obstacles in each of the four boards, and before you start, one player puts their four boards together randomly, and the other players copy them. We just played with everyone having random boards, which Cathala says is also fine. There's a lot of room for variation in this puzzle game, as the basic concept is really solid. A digital version could generate endless variations of board layouts, and really there's no reason it couldn't be a pencil game, with pads of procedurally generated random boards. The rules come with a two-player head-to-head variant and a solo variant, neither of which I played, but aren't particularly different from the core game. The solo version wants you to cover all the scarabs to win, and really there's no reason you couldn't just play as a group in the same way. The system is super flexible because it's a total abstract, which leads us to some of the failings of the product. I love Blue Orange games. I own a lot of their titles. So them following up Catala's Spiel de Jar win for King Domino with a Pentomino game sounded exactly like my kind of thing, but I have issues with it. First and foremost, the theme makes basically zero sense. I don't normally do this, but I'm going to read you the flavor text in the rulebook verbatim because it's just totally whacked out. <clears throat> you are a seasoned archaeologist who is competing against your colleagues to find the most scarabs relics. These golden beetle amulets are extremely valuable as they help solve ancient mysteries about long-gone civilizations that created them. They are known to be scattered across the world, buried in the Egyptian desert, hidden deep in the Amazon rainforest, immersed in the Bermuda Triangle, and frozen in Antarctica. To find them, lead your team on an expedition to set up camps and mark out areas of excavation. Will you be the archaeologist who finds the most scarabs and uncovers the mysteries of Scrabia? Now, I don't have time in this segment to get into the pop archaeology nonsense that they threw into the blender for this, but it smacks of ancient aliens building the pyramids, which is all loaded up with other cultural gobbledygook that really tweaks my melon something fierce. It mostly feels like this was the best reason they could think of to have four different colors, which in and of itself is kind of a problem. The board and tiles in each of the four player colors are almost indistinguishable, so we found it difficult to tell at a quick glance which areas were covered as we were playing. The solution for this seems to be for players to use two different colors for the boards and tiles. The four colors are dull and kind of sickly, and I really can't tell if that's by design or if it's just a bad print job. The cover art by Sylvan Alblin is very much not to my taste and sort of weirdly misleading. It looks like a kid's game, and while not super complex or rules-heavy, this is a frustrating puzzle game that's very off-target for the look and theme. Then there are the boards and tiles themselves. The boards have sort of a weird frame for some reason, I guess to keep them all together, but it's pretty much useless because the two elements aren't sized correctly. The cardboard is flimsy, the finish is dull and flat. There are some cool plastic mountains to drop into the holes on the board as obstacles, but honestly they're pretty unnecessary. I think they might have been going for Toy Factor, but they mostly just made it more difficult for me to see my board. The box actually isn't too big for once, but they could have traded the space the dumb plastic mountains take up for two more players worth of boards and tiles. Scrabia only plays to four, but there's not a reason in the world you couldn't buy two sets and play to eight. I think it's a missed opportunity, especially for the family game market, and it almost feels driven by the idea that they'd already decided on this goofy cover with four people reaching for a scarab. It is, at least, very cheap. Full retail is 30 available online anywhere for about $21 US. But I have to say that you may want to wait around, because this one is going to go on sale. If you don't have space issues, I think you'll probably get $20 worth of play out of it. For us, while I really, really liked the game, 
I really did not like the product, so I'll need it to be substantially discounted to make the fun math work for us. For a full explanation of fun math, please see episode 40. So who should play Scrabia? People who love polyominoes, people who love abstract puzzle games, people who love casual, low-interaction challenges, and people who are excited by the idea that there are secret artifacts under the Antarctic permafrost. I give Scrabia 2 out of 5 jeweled beetles, waiting to go on discount at Miniature Market so I can buy them next Black Friday at half price. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and now Instagram, where I mostly post bad 70s TV board games, at Discount Compost. We don't usually rush to cover the new hotness in board games, for starters because there are so many great games that are a few years old that deserve more love, but also because our schedule of bi-weekly episodes, plus the expectation that we've played the game several times before giving our opinions makes the timing difficult. But Haven doesn't really feel quote-unquote cult of the new to me, given that I've played it several times at SaltCon many months before its release, and instantly fell in love with it. So please excuse me this indulgence. The first thing I knew about Haven was that it was a two-player game from Alf Seeger, where one player was forest creatures and the other is the city, both fighting each other to control the fate of the forest. And really that was all I needed to know based on Alf's reputation and the theme alone. Very Princess Mononoke-esque. Okay, I also knew with Red Raven Games publishing that Ryan Lockett would be doing the art and would, as always, do an amazing job. So that didn't hurt my interest. And oh my, the art is wonderfully green and lush, and the forest creatures are fantastic. Any game where I can play a pangolin card is a good game in my book. Okay, the city cards aren't green and lush. They're gray and red with lanterns and smoke, and full of ominous portent, as expected. Haven plays a lot like a Cosmos two-player game, full of push and pull of the opposing players as they try to gain control physically on the board and or through lore influence with the three elementals moving around the board. The elementals are the key. They are moving across paths that cut the forest into multiple regions called havens. To win the space that one of the elementals is on, each player places seeker cards into that elemental's control row. Either blind draws from their deck placed face up, or cards from their hands placed face down. Then an offering is made at the end of each turn. Once three offerings are made to an elemental, that elemental is resolved. But first, your opponent gets a chance to respond on their turn to either add or move cards, or play special effects. Then all cards are flipped face up, and the lore on each side is compared to the lore value being offered by the elemental. If either player exceeds the lore value being offered, which is a face-up known value, then that player discards all their cards at this location. Next, combat symbols are compared, and whomever has the most wins the battle for that physical location and gets to place their shrine at that location. The loser gets to move the elemental to a new location. But just because you lost the battle doesn't mean you're losing the war, because next you compare the lore values, and whomever has the highest gets to keep that lore token. Lore tokens count for the same number of endgame points as shrines, and can help you win the bonus for having the most lore for that elemental. See, push and pull. How badly do you need that space? Do you really need to win the lore for that elemental, or are you already pretty far ahead in the lead? Maybe you want to lose the battle because if a player controls a majority of shrine locations around a haven, then their opponent gets to draw a lore power card for free. Lore power cards are great. They are special ability cards like getting to play extra cards, or doubling the value of a seeker card in a row, Sometimes losing is advantageous to the point where you may even pull some cards out of that row, because if you lose both the battle and the lore, well, then in addition to moving the elemental to a location you want, you get to leave a card in that elemental's row, giving you a leg up for the next time they're resolved. 
Haven is a tight game. In my plays, it's always started a little slow, and then as elementals are resolved, it starts to move faster. But then as the board fills up with shrines, it slows back down again as every battle and lore comparison at the end really counts. But, and this is my one semi-complaint, Haven is a little complex for a two-player game. I hesitate to recommend it to my family who play fewer games. It's a lot to keep track of with the three different types of cards, the three elementals, the face-up and face-down cards, how elementals aren't resolved until it's your opponent's turn, and balancing combat and lore. I personally love it, but teaching it to my family I can see how it may be a little much for some people. But that complexity is paid off in spades with the wonderful depth. I'm a little at a loss as to how ALF got this game to where it is with such a delicate tug of war between the players and the mental agony of trying to decide if you want to intentionally lose this fight because you have more important things to do. It's a beautiful thing. And once you've mastered the base game, there are some included variants, including the hidden artifacts, which is how I was taught to play and so always include it. These give you special bonus cards if you are the first to include all three cards of the same number across all three elemental rows. I find this easy to do early game, but once things really get churning, the elementals are resolving at different times from each other and it really gets difficult to pull off. It really perplexes me how few people are talking about Haven anymore. Is it because it took so long to get published after the initial prototypes two years ago? Is it the release right after Essen? I'm not really sure, but if you play two-player games like Morales, Jaipur, or Targi, you should certainly give Haven a look. Anyway, that's Haven, a fantastic back-and-forth two-player game pitting amazing forest creatures against fantastical city machines fighting for control of a mythical and mystical forest. If you have any further questions about Haven or anything else, you can reach me on Twitter at Mike Grizzly. Hello, 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here. Lately, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, including an episode from fellow Inside Voices family member, Great Way Games, in which they talked about weird or different themes. This brought to mind a game I bought a few months ago. Published in 2016, Dream Home is a 2-4 player game by Clements Kaliki about designing your perfect house, a theme that seems obvious as fodder for a tabletop game, but that I hadn't actually seen before. Published by Rebel and Asmodee, this charming title serves as a fantastic introduction to drafting, yet brings with it a versatility that has earned it a home in my collection. Each player is given their own house board, which they will fill with various rooms to complete their new home. As expected, rooms can only be built when there's a foundation to build upon, so players need to carefully fill lower floors first if they don't want to be stuck with unplaceable rooms, which then become zero-point unfinished spaces in their home. Various tools and assistants can be drafted to help get around some of the restrictions when it comes to room size and placement, and players also have the opportunity to add extra decor items to boost the appeal of the rooms they've already placed. Once everybody has a fully furnished home, points will be rewarded for rooms, their functionality in terms of placement, and, well, for having that all-important roof on your home. The core of a game of Dream Home is the draft. Cards are placed on a central board to begin each round. Starting with the first player, pairs of cards are selected from the display. Each available pair includes a room card of some type, be it a bedroom, bathroom, game room, or some other category. The other card in the pair can be one of a number of things. 
It could be a roof piece needed to complete your home, a decor piece that adds decorations, an assistant who gives rule-breaking abilities or endgame scoring, a tool giving players the ability to manipulate the draft or placement of rooms, or it might not actually be a card at all. You see, one room card comes along with the first player marker, and drafting this set is the only way to change your order in the draft. The one central draft is easy to explain and understand, making Dream Home a perfect way to introduce the concept. In fact, I prefer this game to something like Seven Wonders or Sushi Go, as with everything being open, it's easy to walk an unsure new player through the options for their first round or so before they're then able to assess the decision space by themselves. And the theme works beautifully within the mechanics of the game, making everything just makes sense. It's very easy to explain the bonus functionality scoring, for example. People already know that in a two-story home, having a bathroom on each floor is desirable. And they understand that requiring a home have at least one each when it comes to kitchens, bathrooms, and bedrooms is probably a good idea. Reference tiles given to each player also explain these scoring options, but honestly, just setting the included score pad by the central board can be enough to remind a new player what they're looking for after the initial explanation, all due to the strongly nature of the game. Adding to this accessibility for new players is the fact that the game looks incredibly welcoming when it's set up on the table. Player boards are clearly laid out, and the first player token is a deliciously chunky, bright orange wooden house. But the biggest draw in terms of visual appeal is the charming and whimsical art of Bartwemi Kardowski. The bright, colorful room cards are full of fun details, encouraging players to examine them closely to spot everything. And all of that color also serves an important purpose, as it helps code the rooms by type, making it easy to tell at a glance what you're looking at when you look over the table and look at your choices. While my preferences in games tend to run heavier, I have a clear place in my collection for lighter games that can suit avid gamers and casual players alike. Our game night sometimes has a mix of intensities, and I also tend to be the one asked to bring games to family events, situations where people don't tend to play at any other time. Dream Home is a game that fits that need perfectly, being quick playing and easy for players to get a feel for during the first round or two. It also comes with a very clear and well laid out rulebook, making it a great game for those unused to deciphering how to play, and has actually been one that I've already gifted to others. And yet, despite this ease in which you can get started with Dream Home, this isn't a shallow game. The order in which cards come out and the variability provided by the other players makes the game different enough each play, which keeps things interesting and keeps me reaching for the game when I feel like something a little bit simpler, especially since the whole thing plays so damn smoothly. At under $25, it's a great addition to a game collection that needs to suit multiple settings, and so I definitely think it's worth checking out if you like drafting, or if you like just imagining how you'd like to put your perfect place together. Let me know how your dream home turns out if you do. And if you try the expansion, I'd be interested in how that goes, as I haven't yet managed to get my hands on it. You can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com, or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The 5 by the all-stuff, no-fluff, and just long-enough board gaming podcast. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 Games. Join our BGG guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website at 5 Games.com. From all of us at The 5 by thanks for listening. The Five By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.